The scripture for the message this morning is from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and we acknowledge you are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of our praise. So I pray that you would manifest yourself in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, in all of your might for us this morning. As you lead us and guide us through this book of First Peter, Lord, help us to rejoice in it and give us eyes of faith to see how it applies to our lives today. I pray, Lord, that with the call to stand firm, we'd also see the grace of God and how your grace is all we have and how your grace is sufficient in every way. So I pray that you would meet us over these next series of sermons, Lord, on this book. And we give this time to you and ask that you would do with it Uh, for your glory and for our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here we are, we're beginning our series on 1 Peter. The letter begins with the author stating his name, which is Peter. So I'm off to a good start already, making great insights for you all. I studied the Greek and... (laughs) I really didn't that much, but read the commentaries and prayed about it, and that's what I have for you. So here we go with all of these wonderful insights. You're probably wondering how many weeks until Pastor Charlie comes back. (laughs) So the letter begins with the author stating his name. And it seems so obvious, I'm actually going somewhere with this, But it's easy to miss the significance of the man and how that becomes actually part of his message. You have to understand the man in order to understand his message. It's important that you don't just blow over, oh, it's Peter, of course, and then go on. And this time I want to camp out a little bit for us, and I don't want us to miss that the person that Peter is actually really radically impacts the message for us. So again... Peter, we have to understand the man to understand his message. This book is more than just the content of the words that are contained within it. It is the message in itself, the man who is actually writing it. So I want to just camp out again and share a little bit about how the man Peter impacts the message of First Peter. The purpose of him writing is spelled out for us In chapter 5, verse 12, he's 
writing to spell out the true grace of God for his audience, and then he's calling them to stand firm in it. Peter gives us the purpose of his writing, and he calls us to stand firm, and I think this is interesting, at the end of the book. Why not at the beginning? I'm writing to you so that you would stand firm. He could have said that, and I don't know exactly why he didn't do that, but I'm going to take a stab at it nonetheless. I think the reason why Peter fills the book with the grace of God and then afterwards calls us to stand firm in this grace is because he understands through his life and through his experience that the grace of God must precede our response and our standing firm. If ever we're going to stand firm, we need to stand firm in something else other than ourselves. Namely, we need God's grace. Throughout Peter's ministry, we see him as both willing and weak. And you and I can come to see ourselves in the person of Peter. You, all of us, are probably willing and definitely weak. We tend to think of ourselves in terms of what we're going to do for God and the great causes we're going to live for in great ways. And that is good. I don't want to diminish that or squelch that. But we tend to overestimate our willpower and underestimate the power of sin and the weakness of our flesh. I think about children's ministries and youth ministries oftentimes hold children and young people at Bible point with, will you believe in Jesus? There's a lot of emphasis given on the response of the child or the to live radical lives for God and not enough, I would say, emphasis on the great and glorious immeasurable power of God that they are going to respond to. There's too much placed on the child. There's too much placed on the individual. Will you live for God? The reality is, will God live in you? Will you know the great and immeasurable power of the Lord? And then, will you respond to that? We generally feel more comfortable being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Yet, the painful reality is, is it not, that we make a lot of goals that we never achieve. We make rules that we can't keep, and we make promises that we can't fulfill. Peter is the apostle that walked with Jesus, and as I said, I think he strikes me as somebody who is both willing and weak. When Jesus was walking on the water, Peter was the one who saw him first and said, I want to try. And he jumps out of the boat and tries to walk to Jesus. And he actually takes a few steps. And of course, as the story goes, he sees the storm forming and he gets afraid and he sinks into the water. He's willing and weak. Now, 
just so you don't get the wrong impression, I don't want to make this sound like I'm making fun of Peter for getting scared at the storm. After all, he's walking on the water. I tend to get scared when I leave the bedroom door open at night, and I have a hard time sleeping. So I'm not making fun of Peter for getting scared about this. I'm just illustrating he's willing and weak. Peter was the one who told Jesus, we have left everything for you. To which Jesus responds, really? Have you made a huge sacrifice to give up your way of life and follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Is it really that big of a sacrifice, Peter? He thinks he's doing a great thing for God. He doesn't realize he's the one benefiting. When it came to foot washing, Peter was the one who boldly claims, no, I'm not going to let you, my Lord, wash my feet. Right? Peter heroically attempted to, to uh, stop the dying of Jesus on the cross. Lord, no, you're not going to die on the cross. Peter was there to save the day. He was also there to save the day when he draws the sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servants. Right? And perhaps the most famous example of Peter's heroics was when he claims to Jesus and he assures him that even though everyone will turn away from you and deny you, I will not. Peter makes great boasts and he has great intentions and he's respectable for his willingness to love Jesus. I think we should celebrate that. But we also see him as a man who did not yet understand who Jesus truly is and the grace that he truly needs from Jesus. Peter makes this great claim, I will not turn away from you. I'll be there with you till death. What's the very next thing that happens? He's zonked out, falling asleep, while he's supposed to be watching guard over Jesus. And then a junior high servant girl comes up to him and associates with him with Peter. And he basically wets his pants and runs away. He's willing and he's weak. He had great aspirations of how he would serve the kingdom. But he didn't understand that Jesus doesn't need Peter. Peter needs Jesus. Peter fails Jesus, but Jesus never fails him. Peter is weak, but Jesus is strong. Peter is needy. Jesus is sufficient. Peter does not accomplish great things for God. Rather, God accomplishes great things through Peter. So you could argue that Peter's call to us to stand firm is somewhat almost hypocritical, right? After all, who are you? I mean, Peter, who are you to tell us or to tell a bunch of believers that are facing opposition to stand firm, right? You got scared away by somebody who was eligible to sell Girl Scout cookies. You have no right to tell us to stand firm. But actually, I think Peter is just the right guy to tell us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Right? After 
You see, Peter really had a before and after experience. He was one way before the resurrection of Jesus, and he was a completely different man after the resurrection of Jesus. And I think what he came to realize was God's grace was sufficient for him. I think he took the heroic mentality off, and he started to realize, I can only be strong in God's sufficiency for me. When he sees Jesus come to him, Jesus' grace is so immeasurable, isn't it? He goes to Peter and he asks him three times, once for every time that Peter denied him, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And I think what Jesus is really getting at at that point is not so much, really, Peter, do you love me? I don't know. I think what Peter was, or what Jesus was saying is, do you realize how much I love you? Do you realize how much my grace is sufficient for you? Do you realize that no matter how badly you fail, you are still in my grip and I am working with you and I am working through you? Do you realize how immeasurable my grace is for you, Peter? Do you? Do you realize how, how, how all-encompassing my love is for you? Because until you really get that and until you get the fact that Jesus is the one who conquers death and forgives sin, we have no hope in and of ourselves. And I think Peter then comes to us and he says, stand firm in this true grace of God. I know the grace of God, and that's the only hope for you to stand firm. So therefore, the man shapes the message. We come to hear Peter telling us, you can stand firm, I know. And Peter becomes this bold, fearless man that I think he wanted to be after he realizes God's grace is sufficient for him. So I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about uh, um, the, the audience that Peter is addressing. Now that we understand the man and his message and how the man shapes the message, I want to talk a little bit about his audience and the people that Peter is writing to. Unlike many New Testament letters, 1 Peter is not addressed to a church right, in a particular city. Um, He's addressing believers in Christ who are scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's five provinces there, and there's no particular church that he's addressing in a particular city. These believers are most likely Jewish and Gentile, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. There's a little bit of mystery around this, And, and they're followers of Christ. Peter was the one who wrote the letter, and he most likely, according to chapter 5, verse 12, um, entrusted the letter to a man named Silvanus, who was the courier who took this letter and delivered it to all of the saints that were scattered abroad and scattered throughout these provinces. So it seems most plausible that uh, Peter would have known these believers in Rome and that they were scattered into these five regions because of Roman colonization. Claudius was the reigning emperor who sought to spread and strengthen the Roman Empire at the time, and um, he, he did this by colonizing some of the provinces that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And, um, and then thus, through colonization, they would have been brought under Roman control. He did this by, in a couple of ways, granting Roman citizenship to those existing cities that were already kind of wealthy and prosperous and affluent, So he granted them Roman citizenship and saw them as strategic centers. He also uh, did this by pouring money and colonists 
into some of the small, even non-existing cities yet to strengthen them and beef them up a little bit so that they would be, uh, and, and they, these were considered strategic kind of outposts uh, related to the, the changing political circumstances. So colonization would have allowed the area to become Romanized in language and politics and government and religion. And, uh, and it also would have provided a strategic military presence in the area. And, and, and it also would have made it possible for commerce and business to be expanded, expanded and broadened throughout the area. So um, the question is, how did uh, these colonies get populated with people? And um, I think... Uh, it's plausible, most plausible, that Claudius populated these Roman colonies in a variety of different ways. Some were nobles and affluent people and leaders that were hand-selected and picked to go to these colonies and kind of carry out and strengthen and broaden the Roman Empire. And many, perhaps, were slaves, um, perhaps poor people, perhaps even criminals, who were willing to leave, and um, they were promised Roman citizenship, they were promised land, they were promised opportunity, they were promised independence. So you can imagine that the people that went over to these colonies were very tied to Rome, and they, their allegiance would have been definitely very Roman, right? So this brings up, uh, how did the believers wind up here? The colonies were not only populated with diehard Romans, but there were often times where misfits would land. And a misfit could have been a Christian who was basically being a Christian, right? They were expelled by Rome under the direction of Emperor Claudius. So when it came to religion, Claudius was as pagan as, they, as the rest of them, but he did actually officially grant some religious security with one condition, that you didn't upset the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. You couldn't threaten... Um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Pax Romana and Christians were allowed to be Christians as long as they did not disturb the public peace or offend accepted morals or engage in converting Romans. So in other words, if Claudius ruled the U.S. today, I think it might be plausible that he would probably set up some kind of an internet monitoring co- committee to screen any kind of content that you put up on your Facebook post or maybe your blogs or whatever, and anything that was decisively and distinctly Christian that would promote the Christian worldview and basically undermine the Roman tradition and Roman um, worldview would probably be monitored, it would probably be censored, and you might be packing your bags for Bithynia or something like that. Because, again... Nothing could come into contradiction or violation of the Pax Romana. Now, it's interesting that we just got done with the book of Acts, because in the book of Acts, we see a lot of riots and outbreaks, basically the kind of disturbances that the Roman Empire would definitely crack down on. You see, back then, their version of Facebook and blogging would have been going out to a street corner and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And if they liked your post, they would become a Christian. And if they didn't like it, they would probably riot or something like that, right? So here we are um, with Christianity was really dependent on spreading through the proclamation of the gospel at city squares. And this would have been in violation to the Pax Romana and Claudius' idea and his ideals in, in, in Romanizing this area, right? 
So this helps us... um, This helps us to understand a few things. Peter is actually writing his letter from Rome, but interestingly, in chapter 5, he refers to Rome as Babylon. Now, why would he be referring to Rome as Babylon? I think the reason why he refers to Rome as Babylon is perhaps twofold. One, to kind of cover up his operation a little bit, to be a little bit incognito so he speaks in code. But the other real motivation, and this is far more important, is because throughout the Bible, Babylon is synonymous with the world system of thought and religion and morals and worldview that is directly ignorant and opposed to the worldview and the truth of God. Babylon stands for the empire that is set up in opposition to the way of of God. And in 1 Peter, Rome would have been the modern-day expression right, of Babylon at this time, because it is the strong, authoritative empire that is in direct opposition to the Christian truth and hostile to God's word. So that's why he considers himself in the context of Babylon, and he's writing to other believers who are in the context of Babylon who are basically a fish out of water. What they believe is in direct opposition, and some of them Um, are exiled. And this makes sense why Peter addresses his people as exiles in this, in this land. Because, um, as foreigners, maybe a better, uh, uh, interpretation would be that they were considered foreigners. They're exiles. Now, now, um, we understand as Christians, if you've been around Christian circles, you can apply the term exile or a foreigner to yourself in a spiritualized way. You can spiritualize it and apply that to every believer everywhere. Because we think of it in terms of anytime we're living on this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. So therefore, when we are apart from Jesus, living on this earth in this foreign land, we are a foreigner. We are not at our true home. As Christians, we understand that heaven is our eternal place of dwelling. And therefore, as long as we're here, we are exiles. We're foreigners. We are aliens in a land that really isn't ours. We are waiting to go home to our king, to our savior, to the place that our citizenship truly belong, it belongs and lies. But at this point, there is a very particular reason why, why Peter calls exiles exiles. There is a particular um, appropriate uh, uh, diagnosis or um, a term that's given to these particular individuals at this particular point in history. You see, the term wasn't even something that Christians invented. The term foreigner or exile would have been something that the Romans would have called Christians for not participating, for not bowing down. They worshipped a different God. They worshipped Jesus. They said that Jesus was the only God and he was the only way to God the Father. And therefore, they would have been considered outcasts. They would have been called foreigners. It was almost as if it was a curse word. So this word applies particularly to these believers at this particular point in history. And then if they would have been kind of considered a misfit and they would have been exiled, they would have been, in a sense, a double foreigner. They would have been doubly exiled, you see, because they didn't fit in at Rome. So what happens to them? They get sent out and scattered to either Pontius or Galatia or Cappadocia or Asia or Bithynia. So they're a double exile. And of course, when they get there, the allegiance to Rome and those provinces would have been very strong, you see. 
Those people would have been very Roman, so they would have been mocked. They would have not been welcomed at all when they got to those Roman provinces. They would have stuck out as, as much or even more when they got to the place that they were displaced. Imagine putting yourself in that position. You are living in Rome, you don't fit in, you're mocked, you're sent out, and then you go to a place that's not only distant, but they're no more welcoming than you just left. And worse than that, there's really nothing else around them that's totally established, right? The situation is very bleak, really, for the people of uh, that Peter is addressing. He sympathizes with them. When he refers to them as exiles, when he refers to them as foreigners, he's telling them, I understand what you're going through. I understand the severity of the situation. You see, right now, Christianity it seemed like it was on its deathbed because not only did the influence of Christianity kind of lessen in Rome because Christians were being scattered out, but you see, when, when um, you know, everything in isolation... When things are, you know, strength comes in numbers. You guys have ever heard that, st- that statement? Strength comes in numbers. Peter does not address an established church in these areas. And the reality is, if you guys were all spread apart and you were separated from any large fellowship and all of a sudden you found yourself in a distant land that was very hostile to what you believed, you would be extremely susceptible to taking on their worldview, to taking on their way of thinking, to compromising your faith, Peter understands how vulnerable Christianity is for these people. He understands how vulnerable they are because they're isolated from one another. And he sympathizes with them and he says, exiles, I'm calling on you. I'm, I'm writing to you. I understand your situation. And this is where he starts in with the true grace of God. And I'll close this, but I want to make a few points about how Peter now highlights the grace of God. What is he going to say to these people? What would you say to these people who have experienced something like this? You're displaced, and you're incredibly vulnerable to basically syncretizing with the strong and powerful anti-God movement. What are you going to say? What kind of rock would you put beneath their feet? And this is what Peter starts with. Here's a couple of things. I'm sure you guys could probably see more in this passage. The diaspora, the dispersion, right? Notice who Peter gives credit to for the dispersion of these believers. You notice this? Does he get on his soapbox and start complaining about Claudius? Oh, Claudius, that mean, evil, wicked emperor who's doing these ungodly things. He spread you guys and scattered you about. No, Peter does not spend a lick of time complaining about ungodly leadership. He, He sees the sovereignty of God and he recognizes you guys are here by design. You guys are here because God's hand has placed you here. The diaspora, that word there, dispersion, is capitalized, indicating this is an act of God. He's the one who's ultimately responsible for dispersing his people, and God is ultimately the one who's the brains behind the operation. What Claudius 
means for evil, and the Roman Empire means for evil, God, you see, means it for good. Claudius wanted to kill Christianity, but God was actually giving it birth in this region. This is why we read about the ruins of the Roman Empire, and today Christianity is the fastest growing religion on the face of the planet. Isn't that amazing? Peter does not get caught up in the evil of temporary kings who are here today and gone tomorrow. He's consumed, you see, with the vision of the Almighty God who is in control over all things, and he's motivated now to make his name great in all of the earth. He's not wrapped up in the evil of Claudius or the plots of the Roman Empire. He's totally rooted and he's confirmed in the conviction that God is in control and God is working to make his name great throughout this area. What Claudius means for evil, God is meaning it for good. He understands that his people will be tempted to look at the evil king and the evil emperor and get really discouraged by it, but Peter wants them to understand that God is in control of these things and God will have the last laugh. When you break down the word diaspora, it is the Greek verb to sow. You see, the picture here is when God is actually the one putting these believers in this area, it's like a master farmer who's coming down from heaven and putting seed in his earth that will sprout up and bear a harvest. They are there by design. They're there because God has placed them there. You are where you live. You are where you are in your life because God has sown you according to his infinite wisdom, according to his sovereign power, according to his purpose to make his name great in all the earth. Nothing is done by accident. They are there because God has sown them there. He has planted them there. They may seem like they're there as a part of an evil plot. The reality is they're there because God's in control of all things and he knows the plans he has for them. Here's a quote from um, a commentator. Karen Jobes writes this, And yet, this untamed region eventually becomes the cradle of Christianity. We know the end from the beginning. And we can look into the future They followed Peter's words to stand firm, and eventually this region becomes the cradle of Christianity. From Asia Minor emerge people whose names are immortalized in Christian history. So God wins. God sows these people into that area, and what Claudius meant for the death of the Christians God meant for the birth of Christianity in that region. Peter refers to them as elect exiles. Election is a very controversial theological concept. It refers to God choosing believers rather than people choosing God out of his sovereign power and out of his sovereign control. Peter wants them to understand, you are elect. The world may not want you, You may be a misfit or an outcast. You may be considered a foreigner. But in God's sight, you are chosen. God has put his hand on these people, and he has elected them. There's nothing haphazard about it. 
There's a plan that involves eternity past into eternity future, right? And I think in this case, what Peter is intending to, for people to understand is that election, when you truly understand that God has electing power, that God has chosen you from the foundation of the earth, I think what he intends this to be is that you are wrapped up in the security of God's almighty hand. Therefore, because you are eternally loved, and therefore because you are a part of God's almighty plan, stand firm. You have the hope of actually living for God, being a testimony. In fact, I think election here is actually God's evangelism plan. I know we don't often think about election that way, but actually election, I think, is God's desire for people to come to know God. Election was never really designed to be exclusive, namely, I'm only choosing these people and no more. It was always intended to be a way that God bestowed his favor and blessing upon a particular person so that that would overflow to other people coming to know the greatness and the worth of the Almighty God. Election is God's evangelism plan to reach the nations around them, to convert those that are in opposition to the Christians. And it also provides the security to know that we are in the eternal grip of God. This is what Peter, this is the rock that Peter puts beneath their feet. And last, and I'll close with this, he has this phrase in verse 2 that they are there according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. Let me break this down a little bit. Peter places the believers within the loving care of the triune God. You see the Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And back to my point before, he places the, um, he emphasizes the believer response of obedience last. He wants them first to know, before they are obedient, that they must understand that they are in the grip of a loving Father who knows them, who loves them, and who knows the end from the beginning. You see, these believers would have been probably pretty rattled. They would have been probably pretty shaken. They probably worry about the future, just like many of you, if you're being honest, you lose some sleep over what the future holds. Sometimes you lose sleep about why did life turn out this way for me? Why am I at where I'm at in this life? How did I wind up here? And you know how Peter answers that? He says, you're here according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And you know, I know what you're thinking. Perhaps you might be thinking, yeah, okay, but I need something else. I need more than that right now to explain my life, and I need more than that right now to secure my future. Sometimes those truths don't seem satisfying, if we're being perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah, I, I know God the Father. No, 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 no. Stop and think about this. Do you know these two things? That God has all knowledge. Nothing is a mistake to God. 
Do you know that? I know you know it up in your head, but do you spend time thinking about that? Nothing is an accident to God. God's foreknowledge means that everything has some kind of design to it. That in itself wouldn't quite be enough. We need one more thing to balance that out. And what is that? God is your Father. That might be hard for some of us to grasp because you may not have had a good father. So the idea of God being a father isn't particularly inviting to you. But the reality is God is the perfect heavenly father. And what do we know about that? What is true then? God knows everything and God loves you and only seeks to do good to you if you are his child. That's the rock that Peter puts beneath their feet. You know how you can make sense of your situation without getting bitter? You know how you can face the future without being completely scared? You have to know these two things. God knows everything, and God is your Father. And that's the reason why you're at where you're at in your life. Nothing is wasted in God's economy or his kingdom. And if that isn't enough for you, if that's not sufficient for you, I would say, and I don't mean this to be rude, nothing else will be satisfying to you. But if you truly know God and his immeasurable love, and if you know him to be eternally wise, you can face anything. This will be enough. Peter is suggesting this is enough for you to face this situation. That is amazing. And I really want to press home. I really think sometimes we read things like this and say, ah, yeah, yeah, I need something more than that. No, you don't. You need to know these things. I encourage you, Make this your meditation. Whatever it is that's hanging you up in your world, meditate on these two things. And do you ask yourself, do I really know God knows everything? And do I know him as a father who loves me and will only seek to do me good? Second, Peter wants his people to know that they are being sanctified and that it isn't up to them ultimately but it's God the Spirit who is working in them, sanctifying them. Sanctification refers to the doctrine of becoming more holy and more like Christ. Good news to you all. It doesn't depend on you. And Peter puts this before obedience. (laughs) Because again, he was willing and weak. He tried the whole, I'm going to live for God, and he failed. And he came to realize, you know what? Um, (laughs) Order of operation change here. God is working through me first, and then I will live for him. And when you truly grasp that God the Spirit is at work in you to make you more like Christ, (laughs) that's a helpful foundation for obedience. Is it not? 
You are not obedient on your own power. You are obedient because Christ died on the cross for you. He paid for your sins, and the Spirit of God is now at work in you. Therefore, now it's your turn. Stand firm. You respond in faith. But know these things first. And then, what's interesting, he talks about Jesus, and he mentions the sprinkling of his blood. Alerting them to something that happened in the past, you are forgiven. The blood of Jesus has been poured out for you. Your sins are forgiven. Your slate is totally clean. And he mentions the sprinkling of blood here for future hope. You will sin again, you see. Believers who are scattered about glory of Christ, you will sin again. That's the reality of it. But you have Jesus. You have a never-ending bowl of grace that you can continually go to and be forgiven. That doesn't mean that we sin because, hey, (laughs) I can just repent tomorrow. No, that's not the idea. The idea is Peter understands how weak they are. Peter understands how weak he himself is, and he realizes that before they are going to stand firm and fight this battle, they need to understand that the biggest problem that they face is their sin. And that enemy has been conquered, and it will continue to be conquered for them. You see, I think maybe Peter is helping them to see that you think the Roman Empire is a big obstacle for you? Let me tell you what a big obstacle is for you, your sin. That's a big obstacle. And if God can overcome that, the Roman Empire is like a little ant for him. So I put it to you, My beloved brothers and sisters, stand firm, yes, but know the true grace of God first. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would help us to know your grace and to know your love. And I pray that those things wouldn't be lost on us, Lord. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't just buzz over them. And I pray, Lord God, that when we consider you, the Almighty God, who knows the end from the beginning, and you are our Father, that that would mean something to us, that it would have its intended effect on us. So I pray for your grace, and I pray for your Spirit to be at work in us, and I pray, Lord God, that we would cling to Jesus and respond to him in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.